Thank you to our sponsors for supporting this episode of Troxel, Arc IT, NCARB, and Avail. We'll share more about them later on in the episode. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Theodoros Galanos. Theodoros works at the intersection of artificial intelligence and AEC, or another way to say it is that he works at the intersection of design and intelligence. He specializes in the development of computational design technologies for the built environment that seek to generate, extract, collect, and articulate design intelligence, bring together disciplines, and enable effective, efficient, and most of all, creative design processes. How? Using language. He's a senior researcher in the City Intelligence Lab of the Austrian Institute of Technology, where he leads the development of Infrared the first AI-driven performance-based urban design tool, and he's also the co-founder of Architext. Architext is the world's first semantic generation platform for architecture. Using nothing more than plain language, users are able to generate a rich variety of residential floor plans, which you might imagine could open up the world of architectural design to pretty much anyone. Architects uses state-of-the-art language models, specifically fine-tuned for this task, to quickly generate functional designs. Generated layouts can then be saved to all the popular design formats, allowing them to simply integrate into existing workflows using products like Rhino and Revit or AutoCAD. In this episode, we talk a lot about AI as it relates to architectural design using written language. More specifically, how his architect's tool is beginning by generating residential floor plan layouts now and where it may go in the future. We also talk about this in the context of democratizing design, how he trained the language model, what biases and gaps potentially exist in the data used for the training, the vision of end-to-end design workflows, what this could mean for the future of the architectural profession, how he got started down this path, the notion of AI as oracles, deep learning models, and so much more. This was a really interesting conversation, to say the least. So without further ado, I bring you Theodoros Galanos. Theodoros, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Hi, hi, Ivan. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's great. It's great to be here. Yeah. So let's see. We we definitely want to get into what you're doing at Architects. I I can't wait to get to that part of the conversation. And and so maybe you can provide a little bit of background before we jump into the the topic at hand, and just tell everybody who's listening. How did you get to where you are and, and basically what, what you've been up to? Sure, sure. So my my road to here ha, has been a bit, yeah, let's say, I, I'm not sure if it's traditional. But so for me, it was a bit not traditional. So I started studying mechanical engineering. And surprisingly, back then, 
many, many years ago, back when, when I was in uni, a lot of our courses were about uh, what today are important parts of, of AI, but none of us realized. So we all became mechanical engineers, and I never really applied it. I, I went around things. I did a master in environmental uh, sustainability, so they used to call it industrial ecology back then. Now I think it's circular economy. And, you know, I, I, I tried to find my way, and I, I, I never managed. And at some point, very, in a very contingent manner, I, I left everything I was doing in Europe, and I came to Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, where I am now. And it is here that I found my calling. It was here that I found my calling about eight to nine years ago, eight years ago. And I got into the environmental design and engineering work, and I started like everyone else, I imagine. Like, I, do, I remember my first day. I was looking at some drawings, trying to find, you know, some things they asked me to find. Are they there? You know, like requirements. And I was doing an Excel spreadsheet, right? This is this is this was my first day, and I had a lot to learn, and it was really exciting. I I really dived into it. I started uh, doing some performance-based stuff, and I still realized that we were doing a lot of, you know, analytical methods, like a lot of Excel spreadsheets other other people have brought, and I started asking myself, okay, can we do this a bit better? So slowly I went into the computational design community. That's what I became. I became a computational environmental designer, I like to call myself, and a lot of ladybug tools. You know, I was everywhere in the forums asking, you know, the, the, the most, let's say, newbies questions you can ask, right? That's how we learn. And after a couple of years, again, because I dived into it, I, I was pretty good at it. So, you know, I started answering similar questions for other users that came into the domain. You know, I got involved in the community. Meanwhile, at work, I did a lot of research and development. I was very lucky I had the space to search. So we created, you know, new workflows, new tools, even, you know, with Mustafa, we tried to make Butterfly and a lot of new ideas. But at some point, uh, I, I was doing a, a bit more complex studies about environmental design, mainly thermal comfort and especially in the urban environment. And I was very disappointed by my work because... A lot of the things that I had to do took literally weeks, weeks to be done. Uh, and at the end of the day, there was never time to do a proper presentation. And anyways, you know, it was just one slide in a, in a presentation to the client. And I was disappointed because I knew that these things that I was doing could have impact in the design. Like I knew f- that if we did them seriously, you know, we looked at the results and then we went back to improve, we could have like real tangible impact in the, in the, in the world. Uh, but that couldn't happen. So at that point, I quit. I quit my job. And I, and I thought, okay, how can I change? You know, how can I change what I'm doing? How can we do things better? How can we move design forward? And that's where I thought, you know, machine learning and AI could be it. And I was actually doing, for a couple of years in my work, some machine learning workflows. And I had this idea of, that became infrared, which is the, the tool that I, we've been developing in the last three years, uh, alongside architects, let's say. You know, maybe we can predict a lot of things. We can use AI models as oracles, we call them, you know, and we can avoid all these costly simulations. So that was the first step, the first interaction with AI uh, in design for me. And the first thing that I tried to attack, and I always do like this, I find problems, was how can I attack this problem of like, you know, it's very hard, very costly, and very time-consuming to do anything that matters, right? Any metric that really matters is really hard to do. It's very easy, easy, okay. If you have the data, it's easy to do costing, for example. Uh, you can do the calculation very fast. Uh, but all the other things that really matter in environmental design are very difficult. So I attacked this, and 
it worked. It was really successful. And then I started thinking, okay, I started drafting a more a wider vision for AI in design. You know, and I call that sort of like, it's not a very new term, but I like to call it design intelligence uh, instead of uh, artificial. And in that vision, there's a lot of blocks and modules, and it's a hierarchical system in my mind. And predicting was one of these things. So the next thing that I tried to do was, okay, now that I have something that predicts, maybe I can find a generator. Maybe I can go back to generative design, something very popular in my domain, and do it properly. And what I mean by properly is do it again on metrics that matter and not just, you know, uh, move around some shape and see what comes out. Uh, so, so I applied, you know, the, that idea of prediction to that, and it was, it was also quite successful. I haven't brought that to the end. It's, it's a very nice methodology. But that was the idea. I started picking out little spots of that vision. We can talk about the vision later of end-to-end design intelligence workflows. And, and we can also talk what I mean by end-to-end later. And that's how architects came to be. Because in that, in that sketch that I had, one of the points was, I call them initiator and, and code. Their names are a bit opaque, opaque, but what they mean is like, how do you put constraints into a system like that? And how do you put your goals and your metrics and what you want to do? Essentially, how, how does the human designer input everything they want to do and they have to do into the system? And I thought this was easy. I thought, okay, maybe a UI thing, right? And we can figure out some cool UI and they can put all this stuff. But it turns out it was the hardest thing you can ever do in an open-ended workflow like that because there are arbitrary constraints. You can have millions of them. I can make the best UI and then the next day someone comes and adds something new and everything breaks apart, right? Uh, Yeah. So that's where architects came. That's where I, I, I realized, okay, what if we can use language. Language is a very, very nice way of expressing arbitrary, not just constraints, everything, right? You can express everything with language. And in that everything, you can also express constraints. You can say, for example, I want this design to have good daylight, you know, to be average cost. And, you know, to, be, to have like this number of rooms, right? And these specific rooms. Or you can, you can say anything you want. And the cool thing about this is another aspect of, of my work that is very important. It, it democratizes design. Language democratizes design because someone like me, who was not trained as a designer, can use this to design. Because I, I do have the words to, to sort of speak to such a machine, right? I do have the words to express what I want. So that's another big in, important part of AI in design, I think, democratization, you know, removing these barriers of you know, things that are very difficult to do and require expertise. And of course, the expertise will always be needed. Like someone that is an expert will use the system in a much better capacity than, than me, right? And it will, it will embed their, they will embed their creativity and you know, knowledge into it. But that doesn't mean that, you know, it has to be catered to someone who has that creativity, knowledge, and expertise. So that's where architects came to be. It was, again, a, all these were gambling gambles, let's say. And I never expected it would work. The idea was I was doing some experiments with a model called DALI back then. So I was creating from language images. This is very popular nowadays. All these clip uh, workflows, if you heard, and you know, art, AI art being created by language. There's, it's very popular. So I was doing that. And then I realized this a bit, you know, what if we can take the image away? Why if we can deal just with language? Mm. And that's how architects came to be. And, and it works. It works in a, of course, the, the current example is limited. Yeah, okay, of course, it's the first 
uh, implementation of it. But what I try to tell to people when, when they do say this, that, hey, this is a bit limited, you know, I try to say something new, it can generate it, is that the method is gen- general enough to deal with anything because it's language. And that's what excites me. That is, it's so general that we could potentially apply it everywhere. You talk about language as like an input, and, and on your website, it's using text. Now, it sounds to me, though, like you're talking about just pure audio voice kind of type of input. In the AI domain, so language is always, it's meant to be as text. Yeah, so this is the, the, the confusion here, I guess. So when I say language, it comes from, from the language modeling domain, and it's always text, yeah. Then the sound, I mean, you can use voice, and... Of course, voice is a part of what I was saying. Is it can also uh, remove barriers, right? Not everyone maybe could write or express their thoughts. So it's important to have it. But I think it's a, it's a technical implementation. And it's not the, let's say, the, the power behind it. Uh, the, the power behind this whole method is language in, in the sense of language, in the sense of text. And we have a lot of text in the world. We have a lot of voice. And people are doing this with speech models now. It's not, it's just not there yet. Speech has a bit, a bit yeah, the issues with yeah, speech are a bit more tricky. Well, I mean, that, I was going to say it's kind of the first Star Trekky episode yet where, <laughs> where on Star Trek, when you talk to the computer, you just talk to the computer. They, like, they, they rarely are typing anything into the, when they're interfacing with the computer. So thinking about language as the ui is a very interesting concept and i i think when one thing that i think about when i think about language as ui is is google what me growing up as the internet was created i was trained to search for keywords and i still very much think that way and i think that's actually a downside because now it seems to me like the queries are very much based on natural language, much more so than they ever were before. So now, instead of just searching for keywords, you're probably more likely to find the answer you're looking for faster if you ask Google a question. If you type it out, obviously. But I thought that was such an interesting thing because I still don't naturally think like that when I approach searching for something on the internet, let alone when I think of using this as a tool to invoke design. Yeah, that's a very good point. Because I think that's, that's a very good example because natural language will be much more open-ended. So I would imagine in Google you will get results that you like, but also a, lot, a big variety of results. Well, if you think about it, most people ask questions naturally. They don't think, we don't all think the same keywords naturally when we think about a topic. If I were to throw one topic out, you might think of different keywords than I would. And so, (laughs) but we might ask the exact same question. So I think like when you think about training the model based on what is actually going on in the world, most people are just simply asking questions because that's the most natural form of a query they can come up with. And and the, the the important thing is that while the the keywords, like we said, might give you more specific results, you know, like the expertise required to know them, not everyone would know them. And it's a nice example. I think I, I like it. I, I never thought of it before. And it's interesting to go and test it as well. Like, you know, try an open-ended question and then try a question with specific keywords. I'm sure, like, the specificity will be different, but, you know, both can work. Uh, and right now, in fact, 
I would say architects, it's, it's at a more specific level because that's an interesting thing. Like I've had a lot of people use it and I've seen that, yeah, especially it's, I, I don't record any of that, no, but I, I see when they share it, right? So, so they, it's much more open-ended than intended, of course, right? Because I, the site also says, you know, use natural language to design. And of course, the data set is much more constrained right now. It's at the level of keywords in a way. Uh, but the language model can handle any word. It doesn't, there's no problem because it's pre-trained on the whole English language, right? So it will handle it, but of course the output sometimes or most of the times won't be what you wanted. So if you put like, people put, you know, a large villa with a pool and, you know, a big balcony and none of that is in the training set, right? Because it's, it's a, a narrow domain still. It, it will still generate something. And the interesting thing, I saw someone on Twitter who shared like, I think they put like, I forget, I can find the tweet later. And they sort of rationalized it. The, the, the architects, of course, made something of what it knows. You know, it can do out of distribution, like different designs, but it can really do like villas, right? And it's 2D. And then they, they went like, oh, maybe it was trained in Toronto. And they showed some Toronto towers and how it looked very similar. You know? And that was an interesting sort of uh, uh, interaction with the UI. But yeah. That's one, one thing that is going to be very, very interesting. And it's actually a huge area of research right now. And perhaps, I don't like these words, but a, few, a, uh, uh, a profession of the future, right? Uh, I don't like to use that too much, but I think it is a future profession, this idea of interacting with language models. And it's a, it's a huge research uh, domain. And it would be very interesting to see how designers, and in general, people in the AC, interact with these tools and what we can learn. When I when I think about the interface with computers, obviously voice has come a lot more into it in the past decade or or maybe less with the devices that we have around our house. People could have a, a Google device, an Amazon device, uh, an Apple device, and they all have various uh, commands that they'll accept. And one of the things I mentioned to you before we we sat down to actually record this was how. A lot of people complain about these devices uh, because they don't understand what I'm asking. And yet, each one of them, uh, I would say that there's some that are more successful than others. So when I ask my Amazon Echo a question, usually the percentage that it gets the answer that I'm looking for correct is much higher than when I ask my iPhone with Siri. But it, it kind of comes down to semantics. They are both kind of expecting you to ask it in the way that they expect it. And that's gotten better over time. So kind of like your the output that you're giving now is obviously going to get better over time as well. It And they learn from people asking questions the way that they're asking them, but they have to get kind of trained or programmed with it has to start somewhere. So it's interesting to see. And I, I guess the complaints are probably just coming from really high expectations because of science fiction, <laughs> right? Because of Star Wars or Star Trek. Because it's like, you know, computer, what's the, what's the answer? To, you know, search the entire, entire database of human history and give me this. Give me the answer in, in a second. I mean, this is, this is, we're not there yet, but it's really interesting times to think about. I, there was a there was a conference that I went to a couple of years ago, and one of the questions posed was, you know, if you had a 
a helper sitting on your desk that was like a voice-activated helper, like an, like an Echo Dot, that actually could help you during the design process, what would you ask it? And so now, like, seeing what you're building, that's kind of, you know, this is probably the first thing I've actually seen that starts to be an answer to that. I know, like, Nathan Miller at Proving Ground a few years ago was looking at Microsoft's Cortana as an interface into Power BI to be able to ask it questions about a data set presented in the dashboard, which is interesting as well. But these are kind of the first inklings we're actually seeing where voice text query is or commands are doing something in the field of architecture. Yeah, I think it's exciting. I think it's exciting. Like, uh, and we are, I would say like on the common of like, we're not there yet. I would say that there are timelines, right? Everyone in AI has timelines. Where are we? Where is AGI? Like my timelines, I feel are way shorter than most of the, uh, of the people in the, in the architecture engineering community. Like, you know, like when we discuss these things with people, they will say, you know, yeah, this is good, but it's not very practical yet. And I, and I like to tell them that it's way closer than you think. In fact, it's practical already. It just needs to be implemented in a way in a workflow. So, yeah, I think we are, we are very close. Like these tools are very close. And Architects is just an example of how close we are because to me, like when it worked, it was mind-blowing to do what you just described, like to say something with words and get a design out. It was it was kind of mild. I never seen it before, and and this yeah, and this idea of querying the whole database of human, even there we are close. So for example, the clip model that OpenAI uh, released a year ago, a year ago almost, and sort of blew the doors on all these things. It's almost that. Is it was trained in like five four hundred million images, right? So it has it doesn't have the whole human visual database, but it has a, a sliver, a big part, a big chunk of the human visual unconscious in there. And you can query it. You can ask it everything, right? Anything you want. And it, it sort of knows anything, you know? Uh, you can sort of generate anything you want, like any crazy combination of visual semant- semantics, language, and, or multimodal semantics. And that's incredible. That's what inspired me, in fact. And... Like you said, it will only get better. Like, for example, you know, we can imply, implement a sort of active learning. So if Architects was somewhere, let's say if a company had something like Architects, right, a way to create stuff, they would just interact with it and interact and interact and interact. And if they were smart, they would save every interaction. And if they were even smarter, they would make a UI that sort of like catalogs some sort of interaction, like some preference, right? Maybe the, the designer says, okay, this was terrible. What, what are you giving me, you know? Or this was good. Or even, you know, if we were even smarter, we would sort of like allow the designer to interact, you know, interactively edit the results alongside. And then we go into this human-computer interaction that I, that I envision in this design workflows, right? Where it's an interplay. It's, a, it's an interplay of like, you know, suggestion and correction. And all, every step in that process, which ideally would be fun and nice to do, right? It wouldn't be like, you know, let's make this grasshopper definition for five hours so that we can... If it was fun, it would generate high-quality data, right? Because these human preferences are incredibly important in actually telling the model what to give you the next time you ask something, right? Right, right. So it's, it, there is a sort of active learning. Of course, there are issues there in active learning, you know, like learning through preferences. But this is a very important. It's, in fact, one of the next steps that I want to do. Uh, OpenAI did it again. Like I think a few months ago, again, the, there is a very nice work com- called the... Uh, Reinforcement learning with human feedback, RL 
HF. And what they did is they took GPT-3 and they just did, I forget what type of prompts, but they were just asking it for things, right? And GPT-3 was generating stuff. And then they had humans say, okay, uh, okay, this is not very good. What if you change this? And that feedback, they gave it to a, a reinforcement learning model, so another agent. And the agent learned how to guide the GPT-3 to better results, right? And this is, is a very nice approach. It's very cool. It's a bit costly because you actually need humans to do yeah, these things. You have but, to babysit, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. But at the work environment, if humans deploying something like that or anything like that, you might be able to re- reduce the costs by just letting people you know, interact. And of course, we didn't touch upon this a bit. It's much easier to reduce those costs if you really use these tools because this design intelligence, AI and design tools, if you have them, you really need to use them in new ways. It can't be just, you know, let's optimize what we've been doing. So the exploration I mentioned in the beginning, so truly exploring with powerful exploration methods, your design space at the early stages of design, that will make this active learning, you know, it will supercharge it because then you, you're actually searching across hundreds of thousands, millions of alternatives and in new ways. So, yeah, there are a lot of steps to it, but I think we, we're at a good place, to good position to, to change a lot of things. I, I definitely want to talk more about your vision for it, but before we get there, I, I want to ask, how did you get it to the point where it is now? What did it take? How did you train it? Yeah, so... I think the hardest part, okay, so I, when, I, when I do, I do some talks about this work in places, and I have, I have this, this slide, I usually say it at the end, but it's very important. I usually tell to the audiences, usually, architects or engineers, and I tell them, you have as much to offer to AI as AI has to offer to you. And I say that because the hardest part, the hardest part of this work was the domain expertise, right? So the hardest part was actually knowing what the problem is. And of course, having the knowledge to intersect with AI and understand, okay, what tool can I pull from there to help me solve it? But the problem, how to solve it and generating the data for it, right? Generating instances of this problem or solution was the hardest part. So so that was the first part for me as well. Like, okay, let's find the problem. Let's say, okay, of course, you, you select a simple example. Let's do residential uh, apartments, which is not really simple. I think there is a lot of design in houses as opposed to offices. But, uh, and then, you know, having the expertise to generate data for that, that was important. And that has nothing to do with AI. And after that, it was just, as I said, it was a sort of like, you know, leap of faith. It, was, it had a very high chance of not working because most of these things don't work. I have a lot of ideas that didn't work. And, but it did. And the, the training part is not that difficult. So the idea was, you know, you generate data, the data are in the form of geometry, and the big mental leap that I did, and this is kind of cool because I really don't, don't like, like talking myself up, but I'm, I'm in like, <laughs> do it. I'm, in, I'm in AI communities, right? And the people there are way smarter than me, and they do like amazing work, and, you know, I've learned so much from them uh, over the last year. And yet this idea that, None of them had it. Uh, almost none. Like I've seen, for example, a paper from NVIDIA came four months after Architects. They do the same thing. Of course, it's not that I was the first one that had it, but hey, I was the first one that did it. Why? Because of the domain expertise, I think. 
NVIDIA is, they're incredible engineers, right? All their code is pristine, but they're not architects. You know, they, they had to find something they could do and they did it with furniture, which is another extension of architects that I'm working on. So instead of making layouts, they took layouts and they positioned furniture inside, furniture inside, in the same way with language. And so, so that was, that was the, the, the big leap of faith. It was like, can we use language? I have these this, this words when I was doing Dali of like generate images of designs. I had this idea of like design with language. So you type something and a design comes out. Architects is designed as language, right? It's language as design. So that was the leap of faith. Can we just take away everything visual, you know, for a second? Just imagine there's no, no images or imagine the image in, in a semantic way. And can we train a model to generate that? And it can. And in fact, it's so powerful because it's, as I said, these models that I'm using, they are available online. This is the other incredible thing that we don't have in our, in our industry. They're all open, open source, right? You can download them pre-trained on the whole English language, right? On 600 billion tokens, like, you know, almost a trillion, uh, almost like 300 billion words or something, right? And because of that, I realized very quickly that they had incredible, uh, let's say, the capacity to go out of distribution. So architects, if you, if you, sometimes if you keep using it, it will generate some really weird designs. For an architect, they will be like, hey, what's this? This is horrible. Why did you even make this, right? And they're right. You know, no one will build this design. But for me, I'm so happy because it actually generates something out of distribution. And that tells me that, if we increase and increase and keep increasing the, the data set and the interactions of it, we can really make this method general enough to design anything, mm. you know, if it's already like going out of what it's seen. So that's a big advantage of how these models were pre-trained on everything in language. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. ArcIT. I'm going to stick a review in this time. So here's a review from an actual customer of ArcIT. The team at ArcIT has been fantastic. After years of struggling with unsatisfactory workarounds, security breaches, slowdowns, and poor IT assistance, they're extremely pleased with ArcIT. The architecture firm of 40 employees with two offices is in great hands. And that was Zachary Goodman, who is a principal architect at CSDA Design Group. So... As business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further they become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry. Their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. 
Uh, speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc-like architecture in the middle, and click Work With Us. Let's talk about content. What is content? You're probably thinking Revit families. Well, yes, of course. But the reality is that you use dozens of applications in your workflows. How many file types and formats are you using and creating every week? Here are some of the usual suspects, CAD and modeling files like AutoCAD, Civil 3D, Rhino and Revit and SketchUp, visualization files like 3D Studio Max scenes and models, materials and assets, photos and imagery, including renderings, site context and snapshots, project information like spreadsheets and product cut sheets, URLs for your intranet and external websites, and even marketing assets like your PowerPoint decks and proposals. I wish it wasn't true, but this list just scratches the surface. You know what I'm talking about. We all deal with a lot of data, and this is the new problem. The good news is, if it's digital, Avail can handle it. Avail has seen more than a thousand different file types in their platform. They've taken a very holistic approach to content management problems in the AEC market. Most of the time, someone in a firm is looking to solve a specific problem like Revit family storage. But the fact of the matter is that you should be solving for the longer term. Avail future-proofs your technology investment. Go to getavail.com today to learn more. NCARB's analysis of practice study is your opportunity to shape the future of architecture. Participate in this industry-wide survey to share your experiences and insights from working in architecture, engineering, or construction. Your feedback will help guide changes to what being a licensed architect looks like and impact how architects collaborate with other professionals in the future. Whether you're an architect or you work with architects, NCARB wants to hear from you. Make sure your voice is heard. Contribute to the analysis of practice study today. Sign up at ncarb.org slash AOP. And now let's get back to our conversation. How do you distinguish the difference between what you're doing with AI and these other software platforms that are providing thousands of generative design outputs based on those really loose constraints that you mentioned earlier? This is a very nice question, and you give me like podium for my. I'm very. I'm a person that is is quite critical, right? I I, I don't mean that I'm very annoying. I just like think things through. A lot. <laughs> okay, uh, that might be annoying sometimes. Uh, so I don't really think that the vast majority. I think that the vast majority of general design in AC is not that creative at all, right? And there is a very easy heuristic that you can use to do that, right? You can take some behavioral dimension, whatever that is, right? Like performance of your design, or just take two axes that you care about. You generate a bunch of things with your method, like hundreds of thousands, and then you plot them there. I would be shocked if the vast majority of the cases, all these designs were clamped in, in some sort of line, right? So like you will never have like your, the method. I think the methods 
I made the grasshopper, right? That's in a design. I doubt any of them was like uh, creative enough to cover the design space. Not at all. In fact, by definition almost, these methods like my grasshopper definitions, by definition, were biased. Why were they biased? Because we have all the sliders and we narrow the ranges, right? We do like, let's do from here to here. Then we have our own design biases. We say, yeah, this is not very sensible. Let's lower it, you know? I don't really want above 100 because it's too expensive. So everything is biased. And what happens there is, of course, we get a lot of valid designs, quote unquote. You can't see me, but I'm doing the air quotes. <laughs> but we are losing a lot of creativity. And in fact, there was this is what inspired uh, my second step after I had uh, infrared, after we had infrared. So after I had the possibility to predict things. And infrared very soon will be, this idea will be combined with architects because uh, we can discuss that later. I thought of, okay, how can we do really truly generative design, right? So I went to something, an AI domain called quality diversity. And I, I also have a paper on this. I know people like see papers as something like, ooh, it's a research thing, but it's a very practical thing for me. Like it's a tool. It's already ready to be used in AC. I hope to be the first to do it, but someone needs to do it, right? So quality diversity says, you know, let's search. It's a powerful search algorithm. Right? Let's do generative design in a way. But let's do it in a diverse way. So let's search all that area. How do you do that? You don't put any restrictions. In fact, there's an open-ended method that says, I first search for diversity, and I also have a quality. So the cost, you know, material, like the time, the daylight performance, some, some metric that I want to optimize. But I don't restrict anything, right? So I used infrared. So I used one of these Oracle models with that. And we, we did do hundreds of thousands of in that case, was urban science. Okay, even that experiment was, of course, a toy experiment for a paper, but you can imagine master plans, for example, or layouts, right? And the coverage of the design space was really much higher, and that's what I understand as generative design with AI. I understand it, it, it can't just be like, you know, sliders and combinatorial thing and run it. It has to be like a process of exploration. Why? Because... One of the, big, the most profound things they found with this, and this is Ken Stanley. He's now in OpenAI. He, he, he used to be at Uber. And he's like the, a big pro exponent of this. And the, the first papers of novelty search and quality diversity. And what he said, they said in their book, which is an amazing book, I, I can recommend it later, is that when we look to optimize something, right, we find good, good things, but we miss out a lot of great solutions because... Some of the great solutions in a problem, we can only find if we don't optimize for that problem, right? So if we optimize for that problem, we bias ourselves in a range of solutions and we miss out a lot of other things. And they found this experimentally, right? They found things, and I saw this even in my work. So some of the urban designs that were good, they had a lineage. I could trace their lineage, their parents, right? This is an evolutionary method. I could trace the lineage, and some of their parents in that lineage were in areas of design that were terrible, right? And those areas of design, by definition, we would have cut out in my grasshopper uh, work, right? I would have taken out, because even before I started exploring. So, so that's where I stand with general design. I think we can do better. One, in really expanding the view in the design space, and I think AI can help us do that. And two, of course, the other problem with generative design is, like I said before, most of the metrics are not really important, right? And why? Because it's really hard to do hundreds of thousands of evaluations. Like, imagine my problem was, how can we do hundreds of thousands of thermal comfort evaluations in urban, urban areas? 
Each of these would take me three weeks at my work. You can't really do that, right? So yeah, uh, so that's where I stand. So I think architects, in a way, so let's go back to architects, is it the, the other advantage of a language model is that in itself, and if you know how to, how to coax this out, in itself is a multiverse, right? It's, it's really hard to explain. It's not just a world model. Like, it's not a model that, that captures the world of language. It's a multiverse of different worlds, right? Because of how language works. And you, it gives you that incredible, diverse, and rich generative design for free. So you said before you only generate one. I can generate thousands if I want. I, I, in fact, I have. I have generated, I think, close to three million outputs by now. And you can have multiple continuations for the same thing. Uh, you can have multiple continuations with different parameters to search that multiverse that is inside that language model. So in a way, like it gives you all that generative design that is really difficult an engineering process to do in architecture for free. And that's also really amazing. So the ne- one of the next steps that I'm doing is I plan to use the architect's model as a generator, as the engine behind the process that will look very similar to what we do in architecture, like, you know, evaluating the output, giving a score, going back, you know. So it can be the engine. And that's really amazing because it's an engine that you can deploy anywhere. You don't need any software, no licenses, no fees, you know. You don't need like cables and spaghetti definitions. Like it's it's easy to use. I really like that. You will notice that about me. Well, there's a there's a huge advantage there, right? Like you said earlier, you don't you don't have to even be an architect to use it at that point. And I think that's one of the interesting things about languages. And this is, I mean, you can see this in books. You can see it in movies. You can, I mean, the written word especially is somebody can write a story and everybody can interpret that and visualize that with their own imagination in very different ways. Like you said, it's a, it's a multiverse of sorts in that way. So the training part of it, like you're talking about, seems incredibly important for adoption within a vertical. Because the thing that you're talking about, I think, is kind of like I had Daniel Davis on the podcast, and he wrote an article about how software in AEC is mostly horizontal and so it kind of has this low-lying set of features that everybody uses at the expense of everybody's got to build their own features on top of that within their own vertical. This is kind of the same, right? Like you've, if, if residential is very different than commercial when it comes to the kinds of commands that you would give it and, and the kind of output that you would expect, I think. So are you, you're, I assume you're thinking about, about that kind of stuff as, as you move forward. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I think it's similar, but also different. Like, it's very similar because, as you said, you know, it's, it's focused on a vertical, right? So this is residential design. It's different in two ways. One, this is not an inherent limitation of the method. This is just a, because we are in early stages. So the method itself is absolutely general. So... With architects, I can make residential layouts, I can make factories, I can make site layouts, I can make anything, anything that I can describe with language. And I'm actually shocked people haven't done it in many other domains, although some are happening, like website layouts are happening, you know, document layouts are happening and all those things. So it's general enough to be applied anywhere. And the second reason why it can be general is because once we get it in deployment within within, uh, practice, and we get 
validate data sets across, across domains, then we can just train it in the same way, the same model for all domains, and then it becomes general. And then we get even more interesting interactions between the domains that I, I can't wait to figure out. So, so in this way, it's different. The other difference, I think, is in the nature. I, 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 I talk about this in, in, when I present this work, and I have this slide about the blog post that Karpathy did. Karpathy is the chief AI scientist in Tesla now, and he's a very famous researcher. And he had this blog post in 2017, which is very, it's, it's quite prescient, right? And what he says is that, and I, I really don't like this, uh, 3.0, 4.0 uh, classifications, but in this case, I use it. So he said that AI models are software 2.0, and I, I actually think they are. So like, we shouldn't think of them in parallel to traditional software. They are not, right? The traditional software, like we said, it has licenses, it has installments, it has requirements to learn it, it has like everything. These programs are software in themselves. They are no longer models. I, I don't think of them as deep learning models. They are software, right? And architects, you know, is a software you can use on a web page, right? Uh, and they are software with great advantages. They can be, de- like we said, deployed everywhere. You know, yes, they can be applied on a vertical, but they don't need to. They can be applied on many different things, right? I've made game maps, for example, with architects. And that freedom of this new idea of software, I think, will change a lot of things in architecture, especially as and design in general, especially as design is embracing, say, you know, more coding and development and software, I think that's a nice future to, to get to, right? Instead of be- all of us becoming developers that, you know, work on top of these tools that Daniel is mentioning, right? Let's, let's be Python or C-sharp developers and make tools on top of Revit and Rhino. Instead of just doing that, we can also think of what if we make our own software? Mm-hmm. And what if that software is not even code, right? Mm-hmm. What if it is a flexible, a malleable thing that can help me create this? And I think that's that's a brilliant future. And and yeah, it's a, it's a completely different paradigm because if you see like software 1.0 is exactly what I used to do at my work every day. You have like some data, some data, and you have a program. Some things go in, and you have a program like I had Grasshopper back then, and then some things some come up, right? My performance, my designs, all these things. While what architects is doing in all these deep learning models is you have some data, so you have the designs, you have the performance, and you have like, you know, some training like Python or whatever, some framework, and you put this in and the program comes out. So the software comes out. And it's really, you flip things on its head. I really like doing that. So, so yeah, there are similarities, but I think they, they are quite different also from the traditional software. You talked about metrics that matter earlier i'm wondering what are the metrics to you that do matter when you're coming up with the outputs that that are useful for people yeah so i'm i'm an environmental designer as i said so obviously i'm biased to it's not about everyone can use their own things that they care so like i i deal with performance based design so most of the time at my work at least before this was you know energy daylighting comfort, natural ventilation, you know, thermal comfort, wink of all these things. But later on, I realized that what I care is really occupant metrics. Like how, because that's, that's what matters, right? How does the space feel to the person inside? How does it, you know, how does it make your work better? How does it make your life better? How does it make your psyche better? You know, all these things. 
So these are the metrics that I care about. I care about everything that affects, essentially, and affect is a very nice word for it, mm. uh, the occupant, right? And there are a lot of things in that. Like, obviously, like I like the comfort metrics because they are very much ignored in, uh, in design. I think I was the only one in the, in the region here doing comfort anyways. But in general, I don't think many people are doing comfort in like most of their projects. It's very, it's kind of, and the reason I understand, it's quite difficult to do. Like it took me time to sort of master it. It takes a lot of time, you know, it takes like specialized tools and, you know, all these tricks. A lot of things can go wrong. And then you're in the middle of the project. Oh, what do I do now? I don't have any more days, you know. And, and it's, it's not easy. And that's why I went to sort of make it easier in a way. And well, that's why infrared makes it incredibly easier. For example, with infrared, you can do in one second thermal control. Anyways. Uh, but yeah, those are the, the ones that I care. I care about metrics that impact the occupant or, you know, think people that are within the area of design. It can be urban design, they're pedestrians, right? And yeah, but of course, that can be expanded in other things. And one of the nice things about the, the quality diversity I mentioned before, this exploration is, is that it keeps talking about behavioral dimensions. And this is like a, an evolutionary domain thing. But it's interesting to think the parallel in architecture. We don't usually think of behavioral dimensions. We usually think of, you know, we have some inputs, right? We have like meters, width, and height, and where the window is, and what material. But we don't have behavioral dimensions. And we usually guide our designs through these other metrics of like very standard sliders. But I like, I'm trying my workflows now to guide the designs with behavioral dimensions. So the behavior will be the, how does the, the design behave? And in a sense, how does it behave with respect to the, to the human, right? So imagine guiding your design by thermal comfort. So imagine moving the slider of comfort and then changing the design. So this is, again, flipping the whole thing on its head. Instead of moving the window left or right to see how it affects comfort, I am moving comfort to a higher performance, and I want to see how that affects the design. So this is incredible if you can do it, and we can do it with AI. Yeah, that's kind of a one-to-many kind of a ratio, right? Like you're, you're thinking about comfort, but comfort really encapsulates many different facets. And different people might even have different definitions of what comfort is. And we go back to the multiverse idea, because the same way as language models are a multiverse of language, the same way every single design space is a multiverse in itself, right? There are multiple uh, brilliant designs at the specific area of those behavioral dimensions. So if I want a design with uh, no, very good thermal comfort, there, are, there should be thousands of designs that satisfy this, right? So it's always a multiverse. And having access to that, that that's a really big part of, of the design intention workflow. So right now, the tool can do 2D layouts, as you call it. And I know that you're talking about kind of this floor plan looking output. And you also have, um, I, I assume, ideas about the things that you're talking about as far as thermal comfort, daylighting, hours, sun hours, things like that. Where, what is your vision for, for where you see this going? You said your timelines are shorter than, than what people think they are. So like, give us an idea of where you see this being able to go and when? Yeah, sure. So the 3D is there already. So 2D and 3D is just a matter of implementation again, right? So it's very easy for someone that is good at web development, so not me, uh, front front end design to make this into you know a 3D instead of a 2D and 
you know, render it and have shades and all these things that designers like, right? To to look a bit nicer, maybe even like. So that 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 should be easy. So the other extensions that we're thinking about and we're working on very close is some things are already possible. They're just not on the on the UI. So for example, you can have multiple continuations. So you can have like like we said, access to the multiverse. You can generate five instead of one. Uh, you and then you know select which one you like and give that signal to the model. You can have a mutation. Actually, it's a very interesting approach. You can mutate or change designs through language, and that's very interesting. So you can already instead of saying I want this, uh, I don't know, three bedroom house, you can say I want this three bedroom house, and then give it one two rooms as an input. So that's another extension that already works. It's just not on the UI. Uh, the designer can actually draw a couple of inputs. So this is the dining room and this is the kitchen. I want them to be here, right? And then they can press the button and the model can continuate from there. So that's also one thing that works. And then the other extensions are, you know, use the same approach to put furniture inside. Uh, use an, the approach that I just mentioned of, of uh, prefixing in a way. That's how they call it in language models performance, so uh, telling the model that I want this type of performance and generate the design. So that will be uh, when we get to daylight and comfort and all these things. Uh, of course, there will be the option of people just clicking a button and getting a daylight map on the output if they want to. But there will also be the option of, I want you know a three-bedroom house with very good daylight in, in the bedroom, so something like that. And then the model should be able to generate something. So that's a step that comes later. I've talked about this in some of my talks. It's, uh, I'm not sure if it's going to work. It's another gamble in a way. It's another leap of faith with something called decision transformer. So, uh, but yeah, that's another continuation. And the, uh, maybe the final continuations that are being worked on and they're always in my mind is, you know, that this is not just meant for architecture. Like I said, uh, we've made game maps with this. You know, we've made like uh, 2D platform, not platformers, sorry, 2D dungeon crawlers, right? And you can make, make game maps with a lot of really interesting stuff, the number of rooms, the difficulty of opponents and everything, you know? Uh, so this probably is not shocking, but, you know, other industries of design are much bigger than architecture in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, at least much bigger in, in terms of market than yeah, revenue. Thing. So gaming is one of them. <laughs> that extent, yeah, that gaming is actually a lot of people like I. I understood this quite late. That gaming is bigger than all the other entertainment industries combined, which is which is crazy. And so this can definitely be used for game for gaming, right? And imagine now if someone can you know just type a sentence and get a game in Unity or Unreal, right? And then they can work on from there. So so those are other extensions that are interesting, like in other domains. Those are mostly because of my curiosity, like just to see if it works. Like even like you know web layouts, or, I don't know uh, document layouts for you know design, you know all, this, all, this, all these things. But yeah, those are the the steps, the next steps. Oh yeah, the last one I forgot. Sorry, it's uh, also the generative design. So at, at one point the UI will will have a sort of button of like you know generative design, generate you know explore something like that, and. At that point, it will take maybe a couple of hours, and after that, you get some visualization. I, the, as a data point on the gaming thing, I think I heard, and this this could be totally incorrect, so 
take it for what it's worth. But on Apple's platform, which is not even known as a gaming platform, the the iOS devices, the gaming, I think I heard the gaming category in the App Store is something like 10 times the revenue of everything else, just to give give a perspective on that. So it's incredible. And to think about the potential training opportunities that exist there compared to what we have as far as data goes as architects is is just monumental in so much bigger than than what we can provide. I, that's one of the reasons I wanted to ask you earlier about the the training is because you know there's the idea of the data sets that exist out there, but there's also the realization that there's a lot of missing pieces. There are a lot of gaps in that data. There's a lot of qualitative gaps. There's a lot of underrepresentation, things like that. And so using these these data sources as training for these AI systems, I mean, it seems to me like there's, there's potential problematic outcomes there. Have you, how are you guys addressing that? Or, or is there a way to address that again? Like thinking about the amount of data that we actually have to work with, it doesn't seem like there is enough. No, no, no. That's, that's a very interesting topic. I like another one I like to be critical about. Like, it's very interesting. We are, we find ourselves in a very, in a almost like funny predicament. Like, uh, of course, we don't have an open source data set in the AC. We don't have the design, the designers imagine, right? It doesn't exist. And it doesn't seem that any party is willing to share any sort of data right? up to now, right? At least to my knowledge. At the same time, ironically, no party has enough data to do anything useful. Just literally the largest architecture and engineering company in the world has a speck of what is needed. Right? They, they just don't have. So the only way to do it would be to come together, you know, as the AC community and make a common data set that everyone can use, right? And that's not going to happen. So, so we need our ImageNet or, you know, we need our data sets. There are much more things than ImageNet now, but we don't have. You're absolutely right that if we start doing this, there is going to be a big bias. And that bias will be a problem, right? Because as I said before, the goal for me, like as I see AI's future in design is to completely break down all this stuff, right? Not to, not to propagate the biases that we have. And in fact, is to create new intuitions, not to propagate those intuitions. And if we just take the biases we have and we train a model, 100% guaranteed all these biases will go through the model will pick up on them. They are very good at that, right? It will pick up on every single thing that we have, you know, been biased so far. So that's a, that would be a problem. And it's an actually an interesting problem to deal with, like as we put this into practice. And it's very important to remember. And this is like design biases, right? Then we need to think of like human bias in the sense like occupant influence. Again, we need to care about who we are designing. I was in so many meetings at my consultancy work before, where people never even thought about who they were designing. They were just talking about, you know, materials and how much this is and how does it connect. Like, so we need to think about people and that's another bias that we, it's there and it's not even visible to us anymore. But these models, we will take it and, and empower it even more. Like, you know, if we are building offices that make the life miserable of people and we use that data set and train a model, then that model will make offices that makes life miserable, like, right? So, so all these things is very important to think of. A way to solve it, like I don't have a good way to solve it. I'm going to work like everyone on it. But I think one nice way is this exploration that I, that I said. So, so there are, you know, like, for example, I do believe quality diversity, like a truly powerful 
exploration without bias can help you generate the type of data that might allow a model right, to, to see more than this narrow view that we have. And yeah, I think, I think that, that is a very, very good approach because it has two benefits. One, it will give you a data set that you can use, right? If you are good enough at engineering it, you will get a lot of valid designs that, you know, okay, we have a data set. And two, it will also give you some invalid, some interesting, some cool and weird stuff, some other things that can help the model learn how to generate new things. So yeah, this is, this is how I would, I would fight it in a way, yeah, with synthetic data generation, which... Thankfully for our industry, it's not very difficult. And in the sense that at the level, I think, at least where I think these methods, and I always think of them at conceptual design, right? We, I haven't talked about detailed design or implementation or construction at all here. It's conceptual design. And I think it's quite easy to generate synthetic data if you, if you put your mind. So I think that's, that's how I would, I would fight. But it's a, it's a big problem. I agree. It's a big problem because, you know, we will just, you know, propagate everything we do wrong one of the things that you show in in the generator right now is uh you have an image that shows useful daylight data daylight autonomy sun hours so it seems to me like there's an implicit orientation and location involved i assume that that's part of maybe something that's just not exposed right now in the interface but how do you plan on, because location matters, right? When it comes to real buildings in the real world, these are the kinds of things that have a direct implication on the comfort of the design that it's spitting out. So how do you address that or how will you address that? Yeah, so this this is this relates to the Oracle model. So the, the ones that are, will work side by side with architects. And there are two ways. So there are some metrics that are not dependent on location. So for example, if you're doing uh, wind comfort, you're okay. You just need wind velocities and you can do it. If you're doing natural ventilation on apartments, you're not dependent on location, just orientation. And the other metrics, like you said, sun hours, sunlight hours, thermal comfort, you know, solar radiation, glare, daylight, they're all context specific. So there is no way around having a model for its location. <laughs> That's kind of At least in the beginning, right? In the beginning, you would need a model for its location. And perhaps in the future, if you do all the locations you, and you have all this data across every location, you can train one model to rule them all in a way that again has the location as a prefix, right? And then, you know, it's okay. You just say, give me a good daylight apartment in New York, and then it will give you one from the data. So that's how it would work, yeah. Uh, of course, you have to take advantage in account location and orientation. I really like the the approach when it comes to the comfort of people who will eventually occupy this as a as a building. So, and the reason I asked about you know where where your vision was going in the future is because it becomes incredibly important to be able to communicate that with the people who it's ultimately for. So. Does this all happen in the browser? Is that how you see it kind of working so that anybody from anywhere can access this and and then therefore point at it and talk about it and, and communicate somehow how comfort translates from this design to them? Yeah, ideally, yes. Like, if it were up to me, I wouldn't mind if the platform was almost as simple as it is today. 
like I know that these things begin like this and then you start becoming a design tool and a design tool and then all all of a sudden you have like all these grid lines and you know I don't know like different layers and different families and all this stuff like I don't know if it will ever reach there but I wouldn't mind if it never did I wouldn't mind if it was a tool that I said everyone can use even as an education tool right even because all this was inspired by a lot what I saw in KL, right? KL is a city that, Kuala Lumpur, sorry, is a city that has incredible development. Like if I look around my house, even now after two years of COVID, there's like 20, 20 construction sites, right? And everyone buys, I don't know if this is the same in the US, please let me know. Uh, everyone buys something here uh, in by looking at renders, that's it. So they buy it five years before, right? Mm-hmm. And of course we know the problem with renders, they are, they're all like they're fiction yeah and yeah they're all fiction like it's nothing so everything get gets file engineered and at the end of the day like not only it's the, the fact that they're lying but the, the consumer like i've seen it here and I, i'm not blaming them they are completely they don't know anything right they don't understand if this is a good place or a bad place. they just see which render looks nicer right and i wouldn't mind if architects was just that a way to to educate billions of people that will buy and habit, habitate, is that a word? Uh, billions of, of houses, right? And if, the, if a fraction of those people, you know, had a say after they, they see how things affect and they told, you know, and they decided to buy something because it didn't have, you know, full height windows in the bedroom, I will be happy, you know? And so even if that happens, and so, yeah, it has to be simple. It has to be simple because I think the impact you have at that point of the design is much larger than oh, if it was absolutely. a tool that absolutely. an architect or a designer could use to, you know, make detailed drawings for construction. You know? So, so yeah. What you're talking Hopefully, about are the kinds of decisions that are made early and have the biggest impact. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That is absolutely the case with architecture. Everybody knows that saving a big problem for later is going to cost more. <laughs> so that the, you're right. This is the kind of thing that needs to be kind of, uh, implemented at the earliest stages of design, so that they can they can have the most positive impact. Exactly. The only the only problem with this is that, at least to my understanding, that's not where the money is. At, right. Right. Conceptual design is in my projects here. Conceptual design. If I was lucky as an environmental designer and not part of the architect, right? Uh, if I was lucky, it was three months, right? I imagine the architects did four or five months before that, and after that, it was done. Just detailed design, documentation, design reviews, all the stuff that, I'll be honest, I never really liked, but, you know, they are important. Uh, but that was it. Like, so all the money, and of course, five years of construction, right? So it's not easy. I understand why people are not doing it. I understand why people are doing, you know, BIM platforms, for example. A lot of money is there, right? A lot of chunk of the money of a project is there. So if you want your platform to, make, to actually make profit, you know, if you want to make money through your work, it's important. But... I think that if you, these tools, you know, architects, ideally, if you give it at a different scale, then you change how you interact. So, like, if you give it to millions of people, right, and they can use it just to, to the, educate. As I the say. crazy yeah. thing is that conceptual design, I think, oftentimes is free. And like you said, it's, the, it's when the most important decisions are actually made. It does not seem difficult for architecture as a profession to flip the script on what conceptual design and the value of it actually is, because it is very interesting to me to see firms competing on drafting, basically. And the crazy thing is, like, 
if if you asked a contractor to build a BIM model, like they're going to do it better because, and, and this is generalizing, but they're actually the ones installing the parts and they know how it goes together. And they're not going to look at your drawings anyway as an architect, uh, as far as, you know, details go, because we get that all the time. How, how should I put this together? It's like, well, first of all, you already know how you're going to put it together and it's in the drawings, which you didn't look at. So it's it's very interesting to me to, to see architects vying to compete in the drafting of the building when their value is not there at all. That's That is a drafting service. It's an issue, and I think a lot of changes will happen in the profession very soon, like whoever manages to shift, to, you know, flip that script, as you said. Because, in a way, architects should not be really... It probably is because I was interested in making it, but it shouldn't be the first application of AI in design. What you just described is very good target for AI, you know? Let's automate reporting. Let's automate drafting. Let's automate reviewing, you know? And I'm sure people are working on it. And I can tell you from my experience, I think it's 100% possible. Like right now, there are models out there you can download and fine-tune and try and do it. So hopefully someone does it well, and then we can focus on what is important, which is design. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Theodoros, this was a fantastic conversation. Uh, I'll definitely include a link to Architects. Is there anybody... And that just comes out as architect, but it's not. It's architect with a T at the end of that dot design. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But where else can people follow along with what you and your partner at Architect have been up to? Yeah, so I mean, the site and the mailing list, hopefully soon we'll have a lot of updates and what, what we're working on. You know, you can follow me on social media like LinkedIn and Twitter. And if you're interested in AI, I highly recommend uh, the Luther AI Discord. It's open and you can always uh, check all the interesting things people are discussing. All the state-of-the-art things are happening in there. So, yeah, I think those are, those are nice places. And also, thank you very much for the invitation. It was, it was brilliant. It was it's amazing to discuss these things. Yeah, so fantastic. I'll have all the links for everything that was just mentioned in the show notes for this episode. And Theodoros, until next time. Thank you. See you. Have a great, have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast. And once again, I would like to thank ArcIT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at getarchit, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. Thanks to NCARB for their support of this podcast episode. Visit ncarb.org slash AOP and contribute to the analysis of practice survey today. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. 
Talk to you soon.